In the Buddha's first teaching after his enlightenment, the discourse that he gave is called Turning the Wheel of the Dhamma in Motion. He set in motion this wheel of the truth or the path to liberation. Specifically, the word Dhamma in this context, this wheel of the Dhamma, he was referring to five powers of mind. And his turning in motion this wheel of the Dhamma was his teaching and explaining the cultivation and development of these powers. Because these are the strengths of mind that actually lead to freedom. The first of them, the first of these powers, is faith or confidence. It's that force in our minds that actually is at the source of our inspiration. It's what has gotten us here and inspires us to continue practicing. It may not be apparent from sitting to sitting But actually, we all have tremendously strong roots of faith. Or you wouldn't be here. It's too strange an activity. (laughs) (laughs) And so deep inside all of you (laughs) is some very strong commitment. And that's what keeps you here. (laughs) Now, from our perspective, in some way, this activity that we're doing, especially after some time, begins to seem quite ordinary. It's just what we do here. Some people go to work in the morning and we sit and walk. (laughs) And it seems quite ordinary. But from a worldly perspective, it's actually extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary activity. But there's been a very genuine renunciation for this period of time of all the values that the world holds important. You know, all those values which people are so busy trying to fulfill or gratify or grasp or get hold of, we're here for a rather lengthy period of time, not concerned with any of that. Really concerned with the deepening of our understanding, of coming to a much more fundamental sense of truth, of real value. And so it's to appreciate, it's to appreciate the strength of confidence, the strength of faith, that we already have. In the beginning, this confidence or faith can be motivated by many different different ideas or feelings. Some people come here and are inspired to continue by a very strong motive to come to the end of suffering, to alleviate the suffering. You know, in one's life or the life of others. So that's a primary motivation. For other people, it might be something quite different. Other people might be motivated. Their faith may be derived from a strong desire to understand. Wanting to know what this life is about. So that investigation, the wisdom factor, can be very strong. Other people may be, vote, may be motivated by perhaps less exalted reasons. It's illustrated by a story of the Buddha's cousin, who on the day the Buddha came back to his hometown, his cousin was about to get married to this beautiful princess. And the, the Buddha went to take his uh, meal And out of politeness, the cousin carried the bowl of the Buddha back to where he was staying. 
But the Buddha never took the bowl back from him. So they walked further and further into the forest. And this prince is waiting to go marry his princess. But he still had the Buddha's bowl. Finally, they're in the middle of the forest where the monks and the nuns are settled. And away from, at least momentarily, the temptations of the palace, the Buddha says to his cousin, wouldn't you like to ordain? (laughs) As a monk, shave your head. Just in that moment, I guess his cousin was inspired. He said, okay, (coughs) I'll do it. So he shaved his head, he took on robes. Meanwhile, his princess fiancée is waiting for him. And he tried to practice. He really gave it, his, he gave it a good try. But all he could think of was his princess. You know, and he's rising, falling, rising, falling. <laughs> he could not concentrate very well. And after a while, uh, the other monks in the Buddha came to know of this, that this poor monk, his name was Nanda, was just practicing all the time, but thinking of his princess in the palace. So the Buddha did a little miracle with his psychic power. Through his power of mind, he took Nanda and opened his mind to a vision or an experience of the heaven realms, the deva realms. They saw all these beautiful beings of light and these celestial, uh, celestial princesses and and the Buddha asked Nanda, who's more beautiful? Your princess back in the palace or these celestial beings of light? Nanda was quite fickle. <laughs> he said, oh, compared to these celestial beings, you know, my princess in the palace is like a wild monkey. <laughs> so the Buddha was very pragmatic. He was a very pragmatic teacher. He said, listen, Nanda, if you practice hard... <laughs> I promise you 500 of these celestial nymphs. Nanda practiced. (laughs) He didn't miss a rising or a falling. Motivated by this desire, he practiced hard. He actually got some concentration began to develop his insight and wisdom. His practice went further. His faith in the practice got stronger. He became enlightened. At that time, he went back to the Buddha and released him of his promise. This story is by way of saying that whatever our motivation is to begin with, there is a certain purification of motive that happens in the course of practice itself. And so whatever it is, whatever it is that gives us that faith, gives us that encouragement or confidence to do the practice is of benefit to us. So what does faith mean? What does confidence mean? In one aspect, it means... means the quality of trust in the present moment. Trust meaning no doubt, no wavering. And it's actually very simple. When we are connected with what's happening in the moment, whether it's the breath or a sensation or a sound or a thought, when we are actually connected with that, in that moment there is a very clear faith in the truth of that experience because we are seeing it, we are feeling it for ourselves. It's not a matter of speculation, it's not a matter of belief. We are actually seeing for ourselves in that moment what is true. When we do this moment after moment, this quality of faith, of confidence, becomes very strong because it's not dependent on anything outside of our experience. You know, as you sit now, and you feel your sitting posture, and you feel the contact of your buttocks and the cushion, that sensation of pressure, or tension, or warmth, and you just feel that, 
Is there any doubt? Is there any confusion? Is there any uncertainty? There isn't, because we are actually opening to what is there. It's a very nice Japanese haiku poem, which expresses this quality of trust or faith. It says, simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. There's no problem. Doesn't every moment's experience arise just like that? And so our faith and our confidence and our trust grows in every moment of a direct connection, a direct contact. There's another kind of faith or confidence that plays a very strong role throughout our lives. And that is the faith or confidence in a sense of direction, a sense of meaning. Now, when we look at this planet, this poor old planet, you know, and the mass of humanity living on the surface, and so often it seems headed to, towards disaster, and there is so much suffering and problems, and the certainty of death for all beings, and the circularity of our lives. Often one is struck just by the question, what does it all mean? Is it leading anyplace? Is it going anyplace? Does it have any meaning at all? The quality of faith or the quality of confidence gives us a certain sense of direction. And it's not direction in space, It's not a direction in time. Rather, it's a direction in the dimension of understanding. When we see through our practice that we can actually grow in understanding, that we can come to know the nature of our minds, of our bodies, of our lives, when we come to know that for ourselves, there is a tremendous upsurge of confidence in the meaning of our lives. What we are doing is cultivating this sense of understanding. In one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the verses of the Buddha, he made quite a startling statement, really. He said that it's better to live for one day experiencing the arising and passing away phenomena than to live for a hundred years without having this understanding. That's a very powerful statement. He's saying quite unequivocally that it is understanding, it is insight which gives meaning to our lives. And so when we see that, when we experience that for ourselves, through our practice, then there's this wonderful Faith not only in the moment's experience, which we have in every moment of contact, but there is this wonderful and enveloping quality of faith or of confidence in the whole direction of our lives, that every activity in our life, every situation becomes a vehicle for understanding. There is nothing outside of that context.
we begin to look at not only our practice, but our entire life with a great sense of inquiry and interest. That is, we ask ourselves, what is actually going on? Is there suffering in this moment? How are we suffering? How are we caught? How are we identified? Where is the end of suffering in this moment? And so we are looking, we are examining. We are fulfilling that sense of meaning. There's an example, or an image, which the Buddha used to illustrate the power of faith in the mind, the power of confidence. He said that it is like a magical gem. And the particular properties of this magical gem is that when you place it in water that's all stirred up and muddy, it has the power to settle all the impurities to the bottom so the water becomes clear. That is the power of faith and confidence in the mind. When it's strong, we drop it into this pool of the mind and it settles all the doubts, all the confusions, all the agitations. It creates a mental environment of softness, of clarity, of inspiration. It doesn't mean that things are always easy. That's not the implication of it. But rather that we have a context for understanding what it is that's going on. What our purpose is in any particular moment, which is to understand. So faith or confidence has this tremendous power. And it has one more power. which is that it inspires effort. It's because we have faith, because we have confidence, that the effort factor arises in the mind. And this quality of effort or energy is the second of these spiritual powers. The Buddha spoke of two kinds of effort. One is the abandoning the effort to abandon unwholesome, unskillful states. And the effort to cultivate and develop and nourish the wholesome and skillful ones. How do we abandon the unwholesome states of mind? It's not enough to hear it and to mentally nod one's head and think, yes, that's a good idea. (laughs) That is not sufficient. Somehow we need some resource within us that actually allows us or empowers us to abandon these unwholesome states. There's one quality in the mind which is tremendously misunderstood, I think, in our Western culture, and which, in fact, is a source of tremendous strength for us. And that is the power in the mind of restraint. Restraint has a bad name for us, and we confuse it with a lot of unskillful things. But when we look and investigate to see what restraint actually is, we see that it gives us a tremendous power to let go of what is unskillful. It's the ability in the mind to say no to those things which we can see are leading to suffering for ourselves or leading to suffering for others. We can't control, as you well know by now, we can't control what comes into the mind. 
I mean, do we sit here and invite, okay, desire, come now. Intention, please arise. We don't. We don't invite these things. Because of our conditioning, the particular patterns of our behavior and personality, these thoughts and impulses and desires, they come. If we understand the great strength of restraint, we need not be enslaved or victimized by each of these impulses. We create the space, we create the environment in the mind to see what comes up, and if it's unskillful, say no. Better than no, no thank you. Let's be polite. The danger that we have all fallen into And one of the things that we particularly have to watch out for is that we don't confuse this very loving no thank you with aversion, with suppression, with denial, with self-judgment. Because very often those are the things that get confused with restraint. We try to push the desire down or pretend that it's not there or the anger, or the fear, or whatever it is. Or we judge the emotional, we judge ourselves for having them. And none of them have anything to do with restraint. Restraint means opening to it, seeing it, feeling it, and saying no. It's very helpful to practice this loving no. You can begin by practicing it with little things. And then we can practice it with big things. And I think that you'll find it gives a tremendous sense of confidence. Because it is a strong place of mind. It is a place of discriminating wisdom. So there's a strong faith and confidence that comes from this effort, this development of restraint. The key to doing it skillfully is to do it with a smile. Do it with a sense of humor. No, I'm not going to do that. Restraint has another aspect, which is equally important and very evident on an intensive retreat like this. And that is the aspect of restraint as the conservation of energy. One of the things that happens, and which you have all experienced now to some extent, is that as we practice, as we make the effort to be aware, there is a tremendous buildup of energy that happens. We feel it in our bodies, we feel it in our emotions, we feel it in our minds. People often experience it in their dreams, becoming amazingly vivid and intense. Things are cooking. But what happens? As this energy builds up, it begins to push on our boundaries, push on our limits. And it it very often feels uncomfortable. We don't like that sense of stretch. It's like we we blow up a balloon. It stretches and stretches and stretches. That's what's happening to us. When it gets uncomfortable, when the intensity gets too much, there's a very strong tendency in the mind to look for ways to release it. To let a little of that energy out. So that instead of conserving it and allowing the momentum to build, it builds and then we leak a little bit. We let a little of the air out of the balloon. What are these energy leaks? There are many, and I'm sure you've all found your own particular ways of doing it. But a few of the more common ones. The tenth cup of tea in the day (laughs) 
is definitely an energy leak. And so just to take a look, to see, okay, how often am I going for that? Mm-hmm. Okay, now I'll relax a little bit, I'll have a cup of tea. How many times a day does one look at the bulletin board? It doesn't change that often. <laughs> but I know, I mean, I know very well the, the intensity of just wanting some kind of relief. I used to read the ingredients on detergent boxes. <laughs> you know, there was a, just to kind of let it down for a minute. We leak energy by writing notes. You know, the yogi mind at work. Somebody's doing something and it's either good or bad, you're either praising or complaining, and it's the most important thing in the world to let them know. It's just a way of releasing some of that intensity and it's not helpful. Another great one that's really a trap because it's in the guise of wholesome activity. Very often on retreat, in a very genuine way, we begin to feel, at times, a lot of love and generosity. And so we start making all these plans to give things, you know. And so we leave our neighbors on their zafu a little package of this or that. (laughs) And then you have to think about it and who's going to leave and do you sign your name or don't you sign your name. And then the person gets it and they have to think, well, who gave it to me? And they write a note back. And these whole little relationships grow up. This is not the time to cultivate this manifestation of generosity. We're actually cultivating it on a much deeper level. That is, in each moment, the development of non-greed in the mind, not clinging, not identification. Let go of these (laughs) expressions which really pull us out of this building momentum. It is an extremely delicate process that we're engaged in. And it's necessary to take great care in conserving this build-up of energy. It is building and it's getting stronger and the power of that enables the mind to open to deeper levels of reality. Take care with it. Conserve it. Watch the energy leaks. You see that impulse in the mind? Exercise restraint. No, I won't do that. I'll just stay in the moment. I'll stay noting. That kind of effort, that kind of right effort, is tremendously helpful and supportive. Sometimes I think in our Western culture, we have a certain model that energy either has to be expressed or we're repressing it. That's, those are the polarities we play with. And really the, the, the practice of the Dharma is the middle path between those two extremes. We're not expressing it and we're not repressing it. We're building it. Because in the building of it, a tremendous strength of mind comes. There's faith and confidence. There's effort to abandon the unwholesome states, which comes from our power of restraint. There's the effort to develop wholesome states of mind. And in this context, it's referring to the third of these spiritual powers, which is the power of mindfulness.
It's the effort to be mindful. Mindfulness means awareness. It means connecting with the object. It means noticing the object very closely, not from a distance, not from far away, coming face to face in each moment with what's happening. And the Buddha gave a very uh, clear scheme of the fields or domains of mindfulness. There's mindfulness of the body. And he talked about this very many times in the teachings. It's a, it's a strong vehicle for developing awareness. What is mindfulness of the body? We're aware of the breath. We're aware of sensations. We're aware of walking. We're aware of our activities. It's very tangible. It's very obvious. It's very grounding. It's very accessible to our attention. And it has a great freeing power of the mind because mostly in our lives we have been very identified with our bodies. We take our bodies to be who we are. That's a big mistake. Because our bodies are getting older and they're going to get sick and they're going to die and they're not very reliable. They're a wonderful vehicle. Can we learn to observe it in such a way so that we can experience we experience what this body actually is without this process of identification? And this happens in our practice through the power of mindfulness we begin to get past the concept of the body, past the form of the body. Now, and many of you have reported in interviews the experience of either parts of the body or the whole body, the form disappearing. You know, you're sitting and you're so tuned just to the sensations, to the changing elements. There's no foot, there's no leg, there's no head, there's no back. There's just a field of changing vibrations. When we see this for ourselves, it becomes increasingly easy to let go of this identification. Because what we're really identified with is some sense of a solid form. When we see the changing nature of the elements that are really formless, the no solidity, that attachment falls away. Mindfulness of the body also helps us to see very clearly the play of our minds. So when we're walking, for example, lift, move, place, we're just focusing on the sensations in the legs. Then all of a sudden, we find ourselves lost in a scenario, some kind of fantasy. You know, of past, of future, of friends, of romances, of work, whatever. And we go, we go ten steps down the path, lost in that fantasy, and then all of a sudden we're back, lifting, moving, placing. What was that all about? You know, we spend a good part of our lives lost in these mind-created worlds. Mindfulness of the body gives us a perspective on that. we, We come back and we're touching the ground and we feel that sensation. It becomes very apparent, very clear. Ah, that was just this little mind bubble. There's no reality to that other than as a thought in the mind. So we stop taking them so seriously. We stop identifying so much with those with those mind bubbles. There's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, things being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral.
one of the most powerful conditioning forces in the mind is the force of craving for what is pleasant and pushing away what's unpleasant. And that's what drives us in our lives. How often in the course of a day do we move as a way of avoiding an unpleasant feeling, an unpleasant sensation? Many, many times. How often do we move or act wanting to experience something pleasant, that that's the motive? By focusing on the feelings, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of an action, of an object, we can free the mind from this greed and aversion. And it's very helpful at those times that you feel lost or stuck in a particular fantasy, particular story, or reactive to a sensation Focus on this feeling aspect. Oh, pleasant, 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 or unpleasant. And in the moment of being mindful of that, when you're simply noticing it, in that moment of mindfulness, there is no greed, there is no aversion. And so it has a tremendously freeing aspect for us. We can see this very clearly also in the third aspect of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the mind and mental states. Now, the emotions which we experience through the day of happiness or sadness or fear or anger or joy or interest or boredom or jealousy or lust, these are extremely difficult to be aware of in a mindful way because they don't have definite boundaries. You know, with sensations, with the breath, even with a thought, there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And with some practice, we get fairly good at seeing it, at noting it. With these mind states or emotions, they sneak up on us. And before we know it, our mind is colored or conditioned by these particular stories. Can you focus your attention onto these mind states themselves, onto these emotions? Not in the sense of getting lost in them, getting lost in the story, not wallowing in them, but really with a sense of interest. What is the nature of this emotion? What is the nature of this mind state? What's interesting to me is that when we're with children, we see children go through a play, a run of emotions so fast. You know, from one minute to the next, they're laughing and happy and overjoyed and then something happens and they're weeping you know, and suffering. And in the next minute, you know, they're happy and, and just this play goes on so quickly. And basically we relate to that with a lot of openness and a lot of equanimity and we are there and present, but we don't get caught up in it because we know how fleeting it is. Why do we take our own stuff so seriously? It's the same play. You know, there's one mind state arising and it's this and you know, the next sitting it's going to be something else and the next is going to be something else. Can we look at it in the same way that we relate to the emotions in a child? You know, we're there, we, we see it, we open to it, but we're not getting lost, we're not getting reactive, we're not holding on. It's just a play of phenomena. We don't have to take them so seriously. Particularly with mind states, the use of mental noting of the labeling is very helpful. 
because it points out an extremely important principle of practice. And that is that what is important is not what it is that's happening, but our relationship to what's happening. Whether it's an emotion or a sensation or the breath or a movement or an activity, what we're really cultivating is a true relationship to experience. And the noting as a tool helps to highlight that perspective. So that instead of getting lost, instead of wallowing in all this phenomena, the noting helps us have the perspective of simple awareness. What is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? There's mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of the mind and all these mind states. There's mindfulness of the Dhamma, which means an understanding of how many of these different mind states function in the mind. Some function as hindrances, some function as factors on the path, some as factors of enlightenment. So we get an understanding of the law of the workings of the mind. When there's faith, when there's confidence, we arouse effort and energy. From the effort and energy, we actually develop mindfulness. It's the effort to be mindful. From this mindfulness comes the fourth power in the mind, and that is the power of concentration. Concentration means that steadiness of mind on the flow of changing experience. And its strength, its steadiness, it's a state of relaxation. One of the most helpful understandings of concentration, which will come as a surprise to you, I think, is that we already have it. Often people put it as a goal, you know, if I practice for 20 years, maybe my mind will get concentrated. I'd like to do a little experiment. Just now, very slowly, move your hand and feel the movement. See how carefully you can feel it. All the subtleties of sensation. See how slowly you can go and still move. Any problems concentrating? It's not a problem. It's just, if we pay attention, the concentration will be there. And that's the whole beauty of these spiritual powers that the Buddha talked about. Each one leads into the other. From faith comes effort. From effort comes mindfulness. From mindfulness comes concentration, quite naturally. And from concentration comes wisdom. Comes real insight into the nature of things. Now we see very clearly and very simply as we pay attention that this whole process is just a passing show. What is it that lasts? Now everything, our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and our emotions and we're happy and we're depressed and the situations in our lives, it is all just arising and passing away. It is better to live for one day seeing clearly 
the arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without that understanding. Because it is from seeing that that we let go of our attachment. We stop holding on so much. And as we stop holding on, as we can settle into this flow of change, we stop suffering. Now often the Buddha, when he was asked what he taught, he replied very simply, he teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And the way for all of us to come to this end of suffering is through the development of these five powers of mind. As we get a taste of this wisdom, it again strengthens our faith or our confidence. There's the sense, we can do this. Just as so many people have walked on the path and actually freed themselves, and become enlightened, we can do that too. We are doing that. So a tremendous, tremendous strength arises in us. So we make more effort, and our mindfulness gets stronger, and the concentration deepens, and more wisdom. And so in every moment of practice, we also are turning this wheel of the Dharma in motion. I would like to encourage you to have tremendous appreciation and respect for the work that you are doing. Because it is really the source of meaning and inspiration in one's life. Let's sit for a few minutes and then if you have some questions, we can discuss them. There's not a cleansing function when concentration works by itself. But concentration in conjunction with mindfulness has a powerful cleansing function. Because it's through the power of the mind that is both noticing what is there and momentarily concentrated on the object, that gives us the power to see the impermanence of each object. And that's where the purification takes place, from seeing the arising and passing. Um, When concentration is developed as a practice on itself, by itself, then that development, when applied to the process of seeing the change, is much more powerful. Um, And so I think that you have to see it as it works in conjunction with these other spiritual faculties. And the stronger the stronger that it's developed, the more strength it gives to each of the other factors as well. Mindfulness means noticing what the object is, and concentration is steadiness on the object. For example, I'll give you an example of an imbalance, which may... There's a state of mind called sinking mind, where the concentration is stronger than the mindfulness. That is, and you've probably experienced this at different times, the mind kind of sinks into something like a dream state, where it's not agitated, 
And there's not restlessness, and there's a kind of nice, quiet, dreamy-like floating state, which is quite pleasant. The mind is somewhat concentrated there, but there's not much mindfulness. We're not clear about what the object is. So the mind, that's why it's called sinking mind, it's just sinking in. The steadiness is there, but there's no clarity. And so what we want to do is to balance all of these five powers of mind. We want to balance concentration and mindfulness and energy and faith and wisdom. Is that clear? I would both note it and take its advice. <laughs> because sometimes, I mean, we do, you know, we do hear. Don't tell people on the outside that you're hearing voices. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do hear these voices in the mind. And when the advice is good and helpful, it can be a, it can be a real reminder or boost. Or, so I think in that sense it's quite skillful. But you also don't want to you want to see it for what it is. You know, and so you could just make the note, actually, of hearing or thinking or whatever, but actually let it serve as a reminder. So you get the best of both. I think that when you are already already identified with a desire or aversion, you've missed the initial pleasant or unpleasantness, and so the mind has gone into the next state of either craving or aversion, but before the action. If you see that, if you pick it up at that stage, then you can go back and look at the object in terms of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And that becomes a way of unhooking from the desire or aversion. I'll give you an example. Um, what comes up a lot for people in practice are different kinds of fantasies. And they can be you know, many kinds. It can be planning fantasies, it can be sexual fantasies, it can be food fantasies. And very often these fantasies are quite pleasant. And so we get lost in them and we enjoy them. And maybe, you know, somewhere down the road we act on them. When you become aware that you're lost in this fantasy... But it's very powerful, just simply by noting, seeing, seeing, or thinking, it's not disengaging. You still get lost again and again. That would be a good time to go back and really examine the pleasant or unpleasant quality of the fantasy. And in this case, it would be more likely pleasant, because it is that feeling which, is keep, which keeps seducing the mind into getting lost. It's because of the pleasantness. And it's because we are not mindful of that quality. And it's quite amazing. It's like magic. When we understand the process by which we feed the desire, the process by which we are feeding the craving, which is being unmindful of the pleasantness, when you look at the mind in that way and you begin to note, it, it's so beautiful in its simplicity and clarity. 
when we are actually noting pleasant, not, not in a superficial way, in a, in a vital way, it's so clear that in that moment of noting pleasant, there is no desire. Which is pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. The mind is in balance. There's a freedom there. And so it doesn't lead us to that next step. With the itch. Right? There's aversion to the sensation, a desire to relieve it, and you're caught up and you're about to do it. Can you go back and simply notice the unpleasantness of the sensation? Unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. In that moment of noting unpleasant, there is no aversion in the mind. And so it's a very, it's a very powerful tool of practice to be mindful of these feelings. Okay, that's the time for the sword of wisdom. <laughs> you take out your sword and, okay, enough. There are times when a strong enough is really very effective. Especially with ones that have been very repetitive, that you have seen 10 billion times already. You know. And you can really just, okay, enough of this. And there is that place in the mind that, that you can do that. Again, as I've mentioned earlier, the key is not doing it with aversion. But this sword-like action can be done. I'm not getting the question exactly. Well, it seems as though there's some subtle variations in regards to like the hindrances that you feel running into. There, there, there could be oh, 150 different variations, and I'm just wondering if it can be simplified. So yeah. yeah, I think that it can be simplified. Uh, there are like a basic ten. <laughs> you know, there's desire, there's aversion, there's fear. There's restlessness, there's worry, there's doubt, there's boredom, there's depression. What else? <laughs> I wouldn't get too concerned about getting overly exact. I think that if you get, if you get the idea of it and you are also noting and noticing the, the feeling quality of it, that it will serve you. Also, something else that you can work with, in very many cases, an emotion arises conditioned by a particular thought. A thought or an image comes into the mind, and it can be very quick, and that thought or image will trigger an emotional state. Again, with the ones that are happening again and again, see if you can get precise enough to catch that first thought. It's sort of like a, you know, a video game. The thought, <laughs> because it's all it's all this chain of cause and effect. Right? It's 
There's no I, there's no self, there's no one behind it. It's just this triggers this, triggers this, triggers this. And so when things come over and over again, if you can work your way back to that first triggering mechanism and be mindful of that and catch that, you can free yourself of that often, not all the time, of course, but perhaps occasionally, <laughs> of that whole, whole long sequence. I mean, there was one time when I was going through this endless, lengthy dialogue comparing this practice with Tibetan Buddhism. You know, and just over and over again. And I just thought, as soon as the first thought would arise in the mind, I'd, I would just know, oh, Tibetan tape. <laughs> That's it. And it was that kind of, you know, it was, okay, see it, enough. And it was amazing. It really had the power just not to be feeding you know, that, whole, that whole tape loop. So it's just interesting to learn when one wants to be very soft and allowing and gentle, when one wants to really really use a strength, a precision of mind, the sword of the mind. And it's all just different, different ways of playing. areas to work with in the practice. I tried to indicate earlier, when there is this coloration of the mind with a mind to look very carefully at the way in which because that's what's locking it in. That's what's, that's what's making it tight, or a feeling of solidity, or a sense of self in it. That process of identification is something extra <laughs> added to the feeling of the emotion itself. The emotion is fine, whatever it is. It's just another, it's just another little... <laughs> but we get identified with them. And so, when that's happening, if you look very carefully, it's as if you are asking the question, although you need not actually ask it in the mind, how am I getting hooked in this? How am I and again, the question is not for the purpose of getting an answer. The question is for the purpose of getting the So that what you're looking at is not the content of the emotion, or the thought, or the story, but what you are looking at is the relationship of the mind to the emotion. That is extreme. It's extremely interesting, because we learn that all of these things can be there, and we can either be lost and identified with them, or there can be that space, that environment of space. And so it's quite fun to do it. It's just doing it and remembering to do it. Okay. Use the time well. Great gift.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.